You're listening to The Running Public. From marathoners to mud runners, we all have the same goal. Get to the finish line faster. That's right. This podcast is for you guys, the running public. Those are actually blue light filtering, huh? Yeah, a little bit. I can see it a little bit. Um, Oh, there you go right there. You look stupid. (laughs) (laughs) I told you on a previous episode, there are people that look good in glasses and there's me. I think you look stellar. That look right there with like the little, like a little not shave like a little bit scruff with like the shaved head and the aviators i think it looks great kirk i don't know what you're talking about i'm just razzing him you look smart and tough bracken just a winning combination there's a market for this look it's not a market you want to be a part of someone asked me today they texted me about style on a t-shirt on a shirt they were looking at buying and i was like first of all i think it looks great but this is also taking style from me and i have like definitely the worst style of most people i know Mm, uh, not on the race course oh yeah but that i mean that's because i wear bright shiny things bracken i tried calling you before this because i, I wanted to do that yeah i wanted to talk behind ian's back before we started recording this thing you know really figure out what angle we were just gonna break him apart by before we you know got into this but now you didn't answer my call so i wasn't able to do this kirk you surprised me with every question on our q a's you got to go into this thing blind. <laughs> I'm kidding, you. That wasn't my plan. I've never been broken on a podcast, but I've never been interviewed by you two. We have no intent to break anything. No, not at all. <laughs> so this is this is what I would like to do today. All right. You say yours, and then I'm going to say mine, and we're going to see if we're even thinking the same thing. <laughs> well, here's the deal: is uh, Ian, you're in a you're an impressive young man who has, uh, I don't know, really kind of made your way in this sport. And I think we would do this a disservice if we didn't walk ourselves through that all because um, it's impressive. And you're kind of a self-made man that way, you know? And I, and I, I appreciate that about you. And then I would like to go into like training philosophy and chat all that stuff out after we get to know you. Uh, that's what I would like to do. Bracken, what would you like to do? Yeah, I wanted to talk with him about how he became who he is today. Uh, he, he, I feel like Ian's one of the one of the, has the, one of the biggest disparities between performance and like racer fame and notoriety. He he, for whatever reason, uh, doesn't get pushed by Spartan or you know NBC before that and whoever live streams it now. And he, I, I don't know, maybe it's because he doesn't pimp himself shirtless enough. Whatever it is, he's not like. One of, he's not on the forefront of what everyone constantly talks about in the sport. Everyone's not like, oh man, did you see what Ian's doing recently? You don't hear that. And I want people to hear it. Yeah. And then I want to get to um, his coaching. His, he's, he's an engineer with, a, with an engineer's mind in an endurance field that needs science behind it. And I want to hear it. And then of course, I think what, what we have to do is, is at least back and forth a little bit about compromise running. I'm so, I mean, I, so Here's my thoughts because I didn't know where we were going with this either. Um, if we, I mean, we could do all of this in one episode. It might be a bit long, or like we could have me on in like a month from now, or however, like in the future as well to target other things. Um, we, we like we like cramming big things into small areas, Ian. I think we can get it all done today. 
I I'm fine either way. I just it's a lot to cover. And I know you guys have your rant. Like I listen, I've listened to like three episodes. I'll be honest, <laughs> maybe. Um, and I know you have like your uh, athlete profile things, and then you also have like coaching and science stuff. And I'm I am kind of a hybrid between that. Yeah, yeah. Well, we definitely have to start with your background. People need to know who you are, mm-hmm. how you got here, and give them a reason to invest in what you're going to tell them in your coaching. If we run out of time for your entire philosophy on endurance sports we'll bring you back on no questions asked that's that part's pretty simple because running is simple for the most part if you do it right yeah why don't we start here then so i kind of know your background ian because i've heard you on podcasts but i i don't actually like know the nitty-gritty of where you started from and because i i I prefaced this with saying like you're a self-made man and what i mean by that is like you didn't have a traditional running background I feel like you've learned as you've gone, which is kind of the best way to do it by your own trial by fire. You weren't led into any bad or good habits. You had to find them all on your own along the way. Uh, Maybe I'm simplifying it and assuming a lot, but is some of that accurate? Yeah. I mean, I've, I've learned a lot from a lot of different individuals and just philosophies and I've tried it on myself. I've tried it on other individuals. Uh, The person doing the leading has been myself and I have led myself into bad habits at times. Um, I've also led myself into very good habits. Um, and it's, it's more trial by fire is one way, but it's also like everything I'm trying is usually grounded in science. Like there's a heavy backing for it. I'm not just throwing darts at a dartboard or a wall and seeing what sticks. Um, and then a lot of the time, the big like portion of the work is massaging what I learn into something that can be utilized by everyone or individual athletes, because um, not everything works for everyone, but you can take core philosophies and shift them and get the the actual core of it and the meat and potatoes of it, and then apply that in different ways. And that's where you'll see a lot of different close or coaching philosophies digress from one another. They might have the same core values, but the application is extremely different. Yeah. Bracken, you mentioned that actually uh, on a recent podcast, you'd talked about professional running groups and how the core principles are the same, but the flair or the way they're executed may be a little bit different, correct? So I agree with that. I agree with that completely. I think when you get to the highest level, coaching becomes being a, a mind coach more than a, than a running coach because every group is doing a variation of the same thing. It's finding the group, like when you talk about true pro Olympic level runners, it's really they have to find a home where they feel welcome and where their unbelievable talent can grow and blossom because they're going to perform under almost any system. Some of them will match up better. But I mean, if whether you're talking about the Swedes, the Kenyans, the Portland runners, they're all doing most of the same thing. It's finding your kind of like your, your your life partner. It's finding that match that makes you blossom. And genetics are genetics as well. Like that is yeah. heavily into it. And you can be great, but if you don't have like the system built for it from the get-go, it's going to be very, very, very hard to get on top. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So why don't you uh, why don't you bring us back, Ian? Because um, for those of you who don't know, Ian, he was fifth at the Spartan World Championships this last year, which is kind of a big deal. And if you know the sport, you saw it coming. Do you know? You know, like with your mountain series performances, with your builds throughout the year, hitting mountain races at elevation, and then just your general training build, you start, you know, kind of middle of the road on the on the U.S. National Series front, and you always build and perform when it's time. Um, so Ian, 
Ian's got this dialed in, but he didn't start as a runner. So why don't you talk to us about like where you where you started a sport and all that? Yeah. So growing up, I was never a traditional runner in like the cross country or track sense. I did compete in sports a lot, uh, a lot of team sports. I was state championship to or state champion for soccer two years in a row, where we went undefeated for two years. Uh, I was second in state tennis, not me personally, team wise. Um, I think I took like six to the state. Uh, and then the following year we did win state. Um, so I do have like high level achievements in at least high school, um, but never endurance athletics college. I did a lot of beer drinking and learning how to learn, uh, my degrees in materials engineering, which is, I have never used the like core science knowledge I got there, but more of like the thought process behind being an engineer. And that has really applied well. Uh, over the years with my own endurance coaching and then just across any subject I pursue to learn more about. Um, and in late college, I did start picking up running a little bit, just kind of recreational running. Um, I, I Googled like tr- half marathon training programs and I stumbled on the Halid and mm-hmm. yeah, Like everyone, yep. Everyone yeah. starts with Hal, right? Hal's great. I mean, Hal or Jack? Yeah, I mean... Uh, And like the more I learned, I look back and was like, yeah, I do things differently. But it's going back to what we talked about. It's still very core principles, like progressive builds, have some speed mixed here and there. Um, And then I started to click and that felt good. Uh, I was rock climbing pretty heavily at the time. And then I want to interrupt you real quick. Sorry. Why did you start running? Do you have like a beer gut you're trying to work off or were you did it appeal to you in some way? Why did you start? I just kind of started going out like one day I started running and I was like, oh, I really enjoy this. I like endorphins. Uh, it turns out I'm not like really, really slow. Like I would always ra- I'd do like a local 5K or something with a turkey trot, um, but never actually excel because I never put forth the effort to be good at it. But I was always naturally talented. And speaking of genetics, my mom is and dad were like they both have very I have a good genetic gift of that. My mom held the record in our local town where I grew up for running up the mountain for 25 years. And she was four minutes off the lead mail um, that year. And that was like an hour and a half race. Um, And then so kind of just been always athletic and outdoorsy doing trail hikes and things when I was younger. In college, uh, it wasn't a beer gut. I definitely was not in very good shape because of drinking, but um, just started going out for these fun runs and ended up doing a couple like small events and did okay at them and wanted to pursue possibly winning them or doing even better. So I did look at like official training programming for running Hal Higdon half marathon program. And that's when I stepped into that space. What grabbed you from the beginning? Was it the fact that it's a pretty black and white sport? You don't have to work on on you know game feel. You don't have to work on court vision. It's just pretty much like training input, training output, and that's it. Did that, your engineer mind gravitate towards that? Not necessarily. I mean, I, so I have ADHD. uh, And so if I just run like on a track or like on roads, I'll get bored pretty easily. And then, so I obviously gravitated toward trail running early on. um, And it was more just the freedom that I found with running. Like you can go places and you can get places faster than you would normally get Uh, just by hiking or walking around. And I've never really liked walking or hiking. I still don't. I think it's silly. Um, And so this was just a way to find these places without having to walk or hike to get there. And like so much cool terrain, see fun animals, 
yeah, being in the woods. I will say running mountains has ruined hiking for me. It's terrible. Yeah. It's, it's, I don't, I don't even understand why I liked hiking in the beginning. I know why people like hiking, but I just go stir crazy on hikes now. Yeah. Unless it's super steep, like unless you're power hiking up like a 15 plus. If there's grade. no option to run. Exactly. Yes. I, yeah, I, I, and especially backpacking, that's the worst. I'd rather just speed pack, give me like a 25 pound pack and let me just run to my destination. And then mm -hmm. I'll set up like a hammock and an ultralight bag or something like that. Where, where did you grow up? Whitefish, Montana. Um, oh, beautiful right, place. Yeah, right near the Canadian border. Uh, oh, I forgot to mention I played hockey growing up and I skied a lot. Um, most of my weekends in the winter were spent going up to Canada for hockey trips and tournaments because our team was so good, we would just beat up on all the local Montana teams. And then that wasn't that fun. So we went to Canada and got our butts kicked up there. Although we won a couple of tournaments. What uh, You're known as more like, you're one of the more quirky, you know, guys in the sport. And that's why we love you. How dare you, Kirk? Oh yeah, the shocker. What what kind of kid were you like? Like growing up, like I want to. If I could see like Ian as like a seven year old, is that dude any different than Ian as like a thirty year old, or is this the same dude? How old are you right now? I'm thirty. Okay, thirty. So is Ian at seven? I feel like you. They wouldn't look much different. Tell me, tell me, I'm wrong. Not much has changed. I would say I've yeah. definitely stepped into confidence a bit more. Um, and speaking of style, I have like found my own unique style. Whereas when I was growing up, I wore clothes that didn't fit. I was like a nineties kid, just like all of us in like early two thousands clothes that didn't fit. I had a rat tail. I had like a five inch rat tail. Fist bump. I had a rat tail as well. Glorious. I graduated um, from the mullet to the rat tail, which is a nice smooth transition. Oh, I just rat tail from the beginning, man. <laughs> we would have got along well. Yeah. Um, not like super awkward, maybe awkward because I didn't know it. I definitely didn't know how to talk to girls back then. Um, and then not that I know how to talk to them now. And uh, I wouldn't say a lot has changed. Um, just in more comfortable with myself. So you, I assume you were one of those like me. I was a shy kid. Right? I would, God, I would turn beat red walking into like a family gathering because I was just like that sort of shy. And then sports helped me develop confidence as I had grown up and then ultimately, you know, somewhat pushed me to the direction I am today. Did you find that at all for yourself? No, I was, I'm not a shy person. I mean, most people who know me will say that that's all I've, mm. I've never been shy. Um, I, it was weird though. Cause I was not necessarily one of the awkward kids, but I was in like the nerd friend group because I was high, like, I'm intelligent and I was in all the AP classes and like the, faster track for a lot of the math and science courses but i was also friends good friends with like the popular kids who were on the sports team um in my high school the soccer and hockey team were the popular kids it wasn't the football team because the football team was trash um so it, i was in a weird mix of that um and i don't know if that helped me grow or develop but i i've always kind of been me which is a loud obnoxious Sometimes get in your face, um, slightly arrogant person. <laughs> well, endurance running needs a bit of arrogance. It's hard to run timidly. If you don't believe in yourself, like it's, you're not going to go anywhere. Yeah. Your, your fitness is about as high as your confidence is. <laughs> it's kind of true. So let's fast forward then. So I want to know Ian's in college and he decides to start running and is like, Oh, I'm like, not bad. You probably knew that from soccer a little bit already. I suppose that you had like an engine. Um, 
when did you when did you start to think like all right i'm gonna i might be onto something here so in junior year of college someone recommended i try like a local mud run and this is probably the story everyone's heard um who do ocr podcasts but i went to a local mud run and i was rock climbing at the time and i just started running and i placed second and i was like oh that's pretty good like maybe i can win this thing because there was another one of that same series uh like six to seven months in the future like what if i train for this and get good and i the next race came along and i did win and i won by a minute in like an hour and a half hour 45 race and uh one of my bragging rights still to this day and one of my accomplishments i like to tell people about is that the people who put it on were seals and within that seal team there was a norwegian special forces guy and if you know scandinavia and you know scandinavian endurance sports like that guy, special forces on a SEAL team, he was pretty awesome. And the team did the race and I ended up beating him as well. So that was something I was quite happy about. Um, and I still brag about. And then afterwards, all these guys who are 6'5", 230, rock up. And they're like, nice job, man, winning our race. Here's like a com commemorative t-shirt that is only us and the race directors get. Here's yours. And it's like an XL and on me, that looks like a skirt. I still have it, but it's, it's pretty funny. They didn't expect like a skinny white kid like me win it. So what race was that? It was Mud Mash and Mud Mash X. Wow. Ooh. Yeah. That sounds nasty. Yeah. If you're in Central California and they're putting it on, I don't think they've done it for a few years, um, but it's a lot of fun. It was in San Luis Obispo. What year was that? 2012, spring of 2012. So then there was a gap between then and when I saw you first, which was at the uh, Washougal Spartan Sprint. What occurred between those two periods in time? Um, I went traveling to South America for a while. I tried to move to Canada because Stacy, my girlfriend at the time, now my wife, um, was going to school in Edmonton for her uh, master's in biomechanics. And then I got deported back to Montana because my visa ran out. If you go to Canada, don't tell them you're looking for a job. Had I just like said, I'm going to visit, they give you an automatic year visa. Otherwise, they'll shrink it down and be like a visa uh, that has stipulations on finding a job. So just when the borders open again sometime in the future. What was that process like? I've never been deported from anywhere. It was like when I came in originally, it was pretty scary because they took me into a little room and they had like Canadian agents talking to me and grilling me for a couple hours, all to just come out the other side with a six month visa. Um, it wasn't like they showed up at my doorstep. It was like if I didn't go back to the US, I would have like a Canadian warrant or uh, a red flag on my passport. So you received a letter? I did receive a really like, polite letter, letter saying you need to leave. <laughs> it was like, you have like a month to go away. We like okay. you. Here's a box of donuts. Go away now. Was leaving interesting or was it like normal crossing the border? Oh, they were like, welcome back. Cool. Um, I've been across the border enough to where I know what to say and not to say to border agents to have mm -hmm. a good, inter good interaction. Um, yeah, I got, I got held in a room going to Edmonton, Canada of all places. I used to do these um, these like bachelor tours where I would get paid to just show up at nightclubs. And I made the mistake of telling the agent when I landed at Canada that I was there to do like a club appearance. And they said, 
are you going to be making money at this club appearance? And I was like, shit, you know, just and then they you. held me and then they held me in a room for 12 hours straight and decided that I could stay, but they wanted to kick me out. And they were, that was the least nice Canadians I had ever encountered. So you do have to be careful with what you say upon entering Canada. And Continue. Also, some borders are better than others. Like there are some places like that have the, the I would say the high traffic borders. So like Vancouver area, um, there's a couple across, like probably near you, Kirk. There are mm -hmm. uh, a couple that you want to be careful what you say because they're going to be, they see so many people come through that they're going to be on the lookout. Whereas like you can shoot the shit with like the local border agent up in Montana. Like there was, Libby was the closest place, which no one's ever heard of because it's a town or Eureka, sorry, that no one has ever heard of. It's in the middle of nowhere, but right next to the Canadian. Regardless. Uh, go back to Montana. Um, this is where I kind of started my pursuit of endurance athletics and learning more about sports science. Uh, I've got a job at Hammer Nutrition, which is based out of my hometown in Whitefish, Montana, um, and started learning some sports nutrition there. Worked as a consultant as well as sales rep. And during this time, I was still training. Uh, I was actually training to do an Olympic triathlon, which turns out I hate triathlons. I do not like swimming and every few years I forget that I hate triathlons and I go do another one and then I get out of the swim and my legs lock up on the bike and then I have to go run and I feel great. And I was like, why can't I just go bike and run and take out the swim? Um, Bracken smiling like he's experienced that before. Oh, yeah. I have to. Yeah, I, I quit OCR for like six months or three months one time to, to prep for an Ironman. People think like, uh, like, oh, there's these three modalities and it's going to be these big change-ups. But like, if you have ADD, like biking on a road for 30 or 40 or 50 plus miles doesn't do it. That's just the equivalent of like running on a treadmill, I feel like at times. Yeah, I could, I wouldn't see that lasting for you very well. I mean, it did, Olympic is not super long, which is nice. Um, so Two hours. Yeah, but I mean, even then, like you're still going between modalities frequently enough. Swimming, I don't like. I don't long, like open water swimming. Um, so I was dipping my toes there in that realm and I, I learned that I didn't like it. And then I actually ended up getting a job, uh, over at Nike in Portland, Oregon. So I called Stacy up at the time and we were both had been looking to get jobs at Nike or a sporting goods industry, um, in terms of engineering. She wanted to be a bi biomechanist, uh, with her master's degree. And we, I was like, we're going to Portland. I got us a job. So headed over there. And then I was in that running culture for four and a half years. And during my time there, I was working as a hardware engineer. Um, and then eventually I transitioned into software engineering and testing. And I worked heavily on the Nike training app uh, when it relaunched, you know, whatever that was. Um, I was a large part of that. And my time there, I was lucky enough to be paired with a lot of highly intelligent, very accomplished sports scientists and trainers. And I started just picking knowledge up here and there. Um, the people who developed the breaking to the original attempt, not the second one, where it was uh, the first time where it was 26 seconds off. I actually got to work with that team a lot directly, not necessarily on the breaking two project, um, but a lot of other uh, sports um, physiology projects and tasks. Um, so I picked up knowledge there. I also, during that time, was helping test the Vaporfly and now what is known as the Alpha Fly. I always just told them they have magic moon boots for the Alpha Fly. Those things, if you ever try them or get your hands on a pair, it legitimately feels like cheating. Um, 
they're that economical and the force return is crazy. That's not a sales pitch. That's just me telling you during my time testing there's like these are definitely gonna get banned. And they haven't yet, but I'm assuming I'm intrigued here. Yes. When did you leave Nike? Whoa, gosh, 2017, 2017. So all of this was in the works for a long time before Breaking 2 happened. Yes. How long how, how long in like into the past did their when did they start developing the Zoomax and the prototypes for the what is now, you know, the Vapor Fly and Alpha Fly line? Um, because I was on a plane flight to Tahoe actually, the first year they held Tahoe. What year was that? 2015. 2015, yeah. And the guy sat next to me was a Nike guy. And he, we were, he found out I liked running and he started saying like, man, we've got this new foam we're working on. And I told him I really love the lunar racers. He said, we have stuff that makes lunar lawn look like concrete. Oh yeah. And, and he said, and I, we, we, they didn't have a working name for it. He either called it zero or X. I don't remember which one he called it, but I couldn't wait to talk to my brother about it. Cause he's a shoe geek. And He's like, yeah, and Galen are up really wants it in his in his victories. And you know, when he trains in the Ventilus, he's got him in or the Matumbos. He we have it in there, so we know it works on spikes too. And that was 2015. And we didn't even see a Zumex shoe for years. So how how long is the production cycle on this kind of stuff at Nike? Uh they have 10-year projects. Um in terms of like they have different names for them. And my wife actually worked in the lab that developed that foam um, that Nike sport research lab. And there's a lot of different divisions in there. Um, that brought like the foam. I, I started testing very early on. Uh, and I was probably like two and a half, three years out from when they launched. Um, and then they had tons of different iterations. Like I, I went through several different iterations of the, um, testing and protocol they had. Um, and it was cool because I had such big data set. They actually, after it, they, um, they gave me my data after it was released and it was like, we released it as a 4%, but you were actually like seven and a half to 8%. Hmm. You were a responder. I was a responder. I mean, yes, there was both directions, but it averaged mm -hmm. around four. So I was like, based on my foot strike pattern and my biomechanics and just how I run in general, I was a responder, which I was like, these shoes are fantastic. And then when the moon boots came out, the alpha flies or that testing happened. That one was a shorter protocol because the foam was already there. They were just changing up secret sauce that I probably shouldn't talk about. Um, mm -hmm. That they, uh, that was like, wow, this is insane. Because then they would test the old model, the Zoom X or the Zoom fly um, with the new one. And that you would even notice a substantial difference. Did you ever get your hands on the Dragonfly or the Air Zoom Victories? These are the new uh, spikes they have coming out based on ZoomX and things like that. No, I did try some weird spike testing once where I was running and the shoe just disintegrated on my foot. I was like doing a, a 200 around one of the turns and the shoe just like fell off. And I was like, well, that was fun. I'm not going to continue running because that's an obvious failure. That's funny. Could you, could you, we refer to like the Vaporfly a lot. I feel like somehow it's just like jabbed into conversations. I don't think everybody listening knows. Like I think half of our people are still scratching their head. Like what is this shoe? Why is it such a big deal? You would know better than anybody. Um, can you just tell people like why this shoe is like so controversial and why it's so good? So yeah. to speak. So a few years ago, Nike um, came out with a shoe known as the Vaporfly. And originally, they only had it on their top marathon athletes and half marathon athletes. And 
the reason it's so good is because they have a carbon plate in it and the foam they developed. Those two attributes have very high force return. So you every foot strike, you input a force into the ground, and the amount of force you get out of that to help propel you forwards is very high. Um, when it came out, there was no other shoe on the market that was remotely close to it in force return and metabolic efficiency when running. Um, basically, you can breathe, work less hard, but still go just as fast, or work harder and go faster. Um, and you had mentioned, and you had mentioned, that, so they've got like the 4%, or so in your case, 7%. <laughs> you were a responder, meaning like you would see a, they predict a 4% approximate increase in performance, which is like efficiency, efficiency, which is yeah. like, it translates to like, uh, unfathomable amount of like time gain over yeah. distance. Correct. Yeah. Okay. So essentially you could just take 4% of your marathon time or PR and then just take, so the next time you would run 90%, 96% of your time. That's kind of what they marketed as. Um, and you were, you were, I mean, across the board, you were seeing all sorts of different numbers and stuff, but it did, what their research has shown that I've seen, it definitely does have an economical boost. Um, and a lot of the independent stuff they've shown has shown that as well. Um, and the big issue was at the time, there was no other company that had a shoe on the market that could compete with the Vaporfly. So then the Nike athletes who had access to it were getting a competitive advantage in these races, whereas other companies didn't have it. The closest at the time it launched was the Boost. Um, audio boost, which isn't the same. It's still a good foam, but it just, it was not up to the level of that shoe. And then they released another one recently, the Alpha Fly, which was more controversial. It's harder to get a hold of and even more exclusive. And mm -hmm. only certain athletes were running in it. I have a, a quick story on that. Um, you know, Nell Rojas did a podcast recently with Rich Ryan on reinforced running, and she ran at the Olympic trials, mm -hmm. uh, the Olympic marathon trials, and she took ninth, I believe, which is fantastic. And she said in the athlete sort of gifting suite, if you had qualified for the trials, that that they were giving away alpha flies or vapor flies. I don't know which one it was. Alpha. Alpha at, at, the, at the gifting suite the day before the race. And these shoes are known to be so good that half of the athletes had never run in a pair before, and they chose to literally roll the dice, ditch their planned shoes for the race, and run in the Alpha Flies for the race, which is unheard of. We preach, like, never do anything on race day you wouldn't do in practice. And that's, like, the, the credibility that shoe had gotten, that 50% of the field ditched their original plan because they had a free pair of Alpha Flies. That's wild. Can you imagine doing that? Nike is a marketing company, not an apparel company or a mm -hmm. company. Nike is a marketing company. They do it really, really well. With that being said, that probably would torch your calves. Uh, the testing I did when I started out with those shoes in the beginning, because it did shift your foot strike a little bit, I noticed a significant amount of tax on my gastrox and soleus more than just mm -hmm. standard shoes. Um, I would not recommend doing that if you are someone who comes upon that situation. Coach Ian says that's a bad idea. Now, Nell chose to wear them, by the way. <laughs> I also believe they dropped the drop two mil from, from Vaporfly to Alphafly for part of that reason as well. There was so much lower leg stress that people were experiencing. So that might have helped people that were already in, say they were in a high road racing flat to begin with, or they'd done some training in the vapor fly. But yeah, that's crazy. Like your Olympic birth is on the line and you just, all right, let's try new shoes tomorrow. You know, you heard a ton of people like I did a couple strides in it and it just 
I had to go with it. Yeah. Wow. Moon, moon boots. Moon boots. I'm telling you. We should we should move back to you. So moving on from that shoe, unless you have more questions, Bracken. No, I could hear about his time at Nike all day. I think that that like, love, hate, despise Nike. I don't think anyone can refute that no one is doing what Nike does in terms of research, um, development, and thinking outside the box. There's a reason that it took shoes five years, basically, companies to catch up to a notch below where the original Zoom Fly was. Not even the Vaporfly. I feel like the other prototypes from other shoes now are like the Zoom Fly, which had a composite plate, not a carbon plate, a nylon plate, I should say, and they didn't have like the special Zoom X. Like it's, it's unbelievable what Nike does in terms of pouring money into being the best. And so I could hear about your time there all day, the people you got to work with, the things you got to see behind the scenes. I mean, I could talk about a ton of stuff. Well, I will say this. So as a Nike employee, like big names come to campus all the time. Like one of my friends who I'm still like one of my best friends uh, when we were there and her um, after we left, we we're still in contact. Her job previously was to bring in all the big names and have them go through the testing protocols at Nike in the lab. And that was her job. She met ridiculous names like Roger Federer, she met LeBron, um, like those name levels were just her daily life. And one thing Nike tells you is when you see these people, you have to not be a star fan, crazy person, just like, cool, there's LeBron James over there. There's Kobe doing Kobe things and just go about your day. Like don't stop and ask him for a photo because on campus it's kind of like a safe space for them. They're not out in the real world getting mobbed by people. What is, what is the most important, I don't know if you can single it down to one thing, but what did you learn there that really stuck or shaped your philosophy and the way you approach endurance training? Because they have everything you could ever want in terms of the highest level knowledge. What, what stuck out to you? I would probably say that heart rate zones are very individual or just training zones and intensities are very individual to each person. Um, and then since I used heart rate based training, that's very important. So establishing and finding your lactate threshold or your threshold test critical velocity, um, that I've found has been the most, it's not foundational, what well, is part of my foundation, but it's one of the best pieces of knowledge I've learned from them. Because I also did a lot of testing myself when I was there in terms of working with other athletes and just seeing the variability across the board. Um, is insane. I actually, one of the products I was working on back in the day on hardware side was a heart rate product that never got launched. Um, hmm. So I, that is something I have my hands very deep into, which was heart rate zones for individual athletes and how they work and look. Um, 220 minus age or whatever the random thing for threshold minus a number e equal, like 190 minus your age or is threshold or something. I don't know. Um, those are not good for everyone. Mm -hmm. They are good for if they line up with you, but for the vast majority of the population, you should do your own research and your own testing to find the intensities you should be operating at. Now you, you said something there that I thought we maybe might get to later, but it just kind of rolled off your tongue. You said critical velocity. Now that is not amongst the normal terms you hear coaches throw around or the running community throw around, but I think it's an incredibly important concept. Is critical velocity something that was ingrained at Nike or is that something you've picked up recently? At first, if you don't mind explaining to the audience what critical velocity, how that relates to lactate threshold, aerobic threshold, all that stuff. Yeah. So 
my like there's a there's heavily scientific based terms for crit critical velocity but the easy way of saying it is it's the pace at which you can sustain aerobically indefinitely without having system failure in terms of hydration problems so you get dehydrated over time uh lack of calories your glycogen stores or your your fuel that you start with will go away um, muscle fatigue, it's the pace just below those things. And if all of that were able to operate perfectly, you could sustain indefinitely. A lot of people know it as their 10k pace or half marathon pace. Um, and lactate threshold is usually just below it. It's a little below it because you can run beyond lactate threshold. You just start accruing hydrogen ions over time. But that buildup can be very slow depending on where you're at in relation to lactate threshold. Mm -hmm. So critical velocity is slightly faster than lactate threshold. A lot of people think of it as, I mean, again, saying 10K or half marathon, it depends on how fast your 10K or half marathon yeah. is. Yes. But whereas a lot of people would say lactate threshold is an hour, this is more like that 30 to 40 minute race range effort. And it is, I think it's super important to our sport individually. Now we can come back to this later because we're not on the coaching philosophy, but it's interesting that of all the coaches I've talked to in the sport, you're the only one that's mentioned CV. And I really like that. Yeah. So I, that is another, I, we can go into another thing I learned from Nike. I did learn that from individuals at Nike, like the, the sports physiologists who are doing breaking two, that is something that they were implementing with those athletes, Kipchoge and the rest um, they were using critical velocity training and that is where I got that knowledge from. Um, one other side to critical or the other half of critical velocity is your D prime, which essentially is your anaerobic stores. It's the amount of distance you can run like anaerobic anaerobically at, at like your max intensity. Um, mm -hmm. and that, if you look at it like a battery, your D prime is your battery and, your uh, critical velocity is like the charge. It's just the constant current always going in. And you can charge your battery if you drop below your critical velocity and that D prime can charge back up over time. And then you can use it for bursts and races. But if you're operating at critical velocity, you're going to blow through D prime pretty quick. And then that's the pace you're going to run for the rest of the race. Mm -hmm. Now, I first heard about critical velocity and studying swimming training. Um, I really like swimming and I really like cycling because they're extremely black and white training and it's very interval based. I believe that the human body really responds well to intervals. Why does our running community not embrace CV the way that, why, why did I have to hear about it in swimming? Nike knows about it. Swimming knows about it. Why does the greater running community not embrace it? I would just say it's kind of the old boys club where you have these older coaches who went with these different styles and that got so ingrained in our culture that you see that all over the place. And that's the vast majority of knowledge people pull from. Like I, I mentioned Hal Higdon, like, I don't think he knew about critical philosophy. Um, so it's not very common among coaches and individuals. And then you see, I'm starting to see this shift, like you, myself, Kirk, new, new age coaches who aren't sticking with the same old mold. They're kind of creating their own molds and learning from the previous knowledge because there's a lot of great stuff out there, but adapting it and shifting it into their own training programs and moving forward. And I think you're seeing a lot less injured athletes. You're seeing athletes who are uh, continuing to progress over time instead of burning out quickly. Um, a lot healthier athletes 
we're starting to get away from the stigma of skinnier is better with athletes. Uh, there's still a big issue in women's culture and running that you notice, even a lot of men, mm -hmm. uh, people are starting to see the importance of eating healthy fats, all of those things. It's just taking, it's a long process because running is such an old sport. I mean, you could argue it's the oldest sport persistence yeah. hunting way back then. No, I think, I think the difference, I, I, maybe I'm wrong. You know more about this than I do, but I think the biggest shift has been from like the more is more philosophy to like the more is not necessarily more, the less is more philosophy. That's what I feel like I'm, I'm understanding. If you look at like a lot of top level athletes, let's say from like the seventies or eighties, I mean, talk about like in general, if you want to like clump them together, the, the amount of, of mileage and, and things people were running. And, and now if you look at that, I would say 50% of highly successful athletes aren't doing that kind of work, but yet performing better because they're working smarter in the process, staying healthy while doing it. And then thus having a long-term career, at least that's what I'm noticing in the, in the sport today. Yeah. And I, I would agree with that. I, I think one thing you did say is they are working smarter and that's the thing you need to dive down on because in my philosophy and like everyone here, it's quality first, and then you start shifting into volume. And volume definitely has its place, but you have to progress to get there and you need to make sure your quality is there. If you're just doing crap miles all the time and throwing them on, yes, you'll get faster, you're also gonna get injured, and then your career is gonna be pretty darn short. Whereas, I mean, this is something Bracken's mentioned a couple of times of his, his return to sport protocol that is much longer than you would see like a traditional running coach do. Mm -hmm. One of the arguments we hear, and we're fully off on tangent land now, so whatever, <laughs> is people, are like, <laughs> people in the 70s and 80s, you know, 80s runners, Rogers, all these guys, they're all running 120, 140, 150. Some people ran 200 mile weeks and we're not running that much faster now. And there's some truth to that. But where the truth kind of ends is that we're running longer now. People might be hitting the same, you know, 208 marathon, but now they're hitting it at 40 or 45. We have master's athletes now that would have been world-class in the 80s. And we have people who are continuing to progress into their mid-30s on the track, which you never saw before. And I think that, yeah, you may arrive at the same place in terms of in cramming in your training versus really playing the long game and hitting correct intensities rather than every day's hammer day. Talent doesn't hide. You might get there either way, but one, you might burn out in four years and one, you might be on the track for the next 14 years. And that's, that's an underutilized argument because at the end of the day, the general populace doesn't care if they can PR, if they never get to run again. The general populace wants to run their whole entire lives. And that's why some of these systems are so important to address. I mean, I could say that I would be in the general, I want to run my entire life. Yeah. Like I'm, I'm sure you mm -hmm. guys do as well. Well, our PRs uh, don't matter enough. If no. I PR in the mile, it's still slower than it would take to make the Olympics as a female. Like, what does it matter if I PR this year, if I never run, a, you know, into my forties, I'd much rather run in my forties. I'd rather break five in my forties than break four ten right now, you know? Yeah. But I mean, we are also like, we're not in, like, we are good athletes in our own right. We're not professional trail runner. Well, some of like some of the people in obstacle course racing could be professional trail runners. Um, but we're certainly not going to be professional road runners or track runners. So we have shifted our focus definitely away. Um, and one thing I want to say, like, yes, I agree with you, Bracken. At one thing I saw at Nike was Alberto Salazar's knees. That dude killed himself while mm -hmm. running and has no knee tissue left whatsoever. I don't, he can't even walk normally, more or less run. 
Uh, and that's a downside to doing mm-hmm. that. How old was he when his running career, he just couldn't sustain it anymore? Do you remember? I feel, you like, I feel like Bracken would know that knowledge. I mean, I want to say 36, but I can't substantiate that. You chat, I'll look it up. Well, he, we, I, we, I was just going to throw him out there to use him as an example of exactly what we're talking about. Yeah, his potentially could have run further into his career, but man, that guy pounded it for months, just pounded it. But yeah. continue. Um, and then another thing that you mentioned, Bracken, is like we're all getting to the same point, and the innovations and the PRs were, or the world records we're seeing now. And there's a lot of different topics on that or uh, articles on this, but we're seeing those from equipment development and footwear development. Um, yeah. Some nutrition, a little bit here and there, but it's not the human body that's getting faster. It's the things we're using mm-hmm. externally. Yeah, let's um, uh, let's get back to you, Ian. <laughs> can we can we try to do that for a sec? Um, so why'd you leave Nike, and then what the heck happened? Uh, I was working at Nike, and I wasn't like the culture there is very unique and i i was actually a good fit for it i just didn't like the how they treated the individuals who weren't necessarily a good fit for there um i went through several rounds of layoffs uh i was fine and i started dipping my toes into coaching business on the side um after having all these interactions with sports uh physiologists trainers biomechanists the whole gambit of like performance sports and athletics in one spot I had access to. Eventually I started having conversations with individuals outside of Nike and some internal even that I was like, wow, I know a lot about performance and athletic training. Like I, I, and this was just from years of soaking it in. And so I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do with my life at the time. That's kind of everyone in their mid twenties. So I dipped my toes in coaching and I originally started on board with um, Ryan and uh, Matt Kempson. And that's kind of where I started my coaching business. I was doing the endurance athletic side and uh, Ryan Kempson was doing the um, strength and conditioning side. And that went really well. We had a falling out about a year and a half later. Um, just things weren't working out, but I continued my business and I eventually took it full time and left Nike to pursue coaching as my main source of income, supplementing it with racing. Uh, that's when I started racing competitively, competitively to a certain extent at Nike and I devoted more time to training um, and traveling around and trying to get my name out there. I have a serious that. question for you. Yes. Do you, do you miss the yipping and the yapping during races? I do. You do? I do. That's so fun. I sometimes do it out in the woods by myself, but I mean, that's, it's similar, not the same though. We don't hear it anymore. And when I showed up to my first U S national series race in 2017, uh, I just couldn't figure out what the hell was going on because there were these people yipping and yapping all through the woods and you know, in the morning and it's like that dewy feel and it just echoed through the forest. And I was like, what am I not understanding about this sport? Little did I know it was you three knuckleheads just barking at each other the whole race. I can't tell you how happy I am that that's not a, a thing anymore. <laughs> Everyone loved it. I despised it. I can't even like there. There were so, several races where I made a move earlier than I wanted, so I to try to get out of earshot. It drove me nuts. I didn't even want to like you as a person because of your call in the woods. Yeah, I got I, over it eventually, but I understand. Man, what was, could you give the audience a little bit of a taste of what you guys would do mid-race? It was the most bizarre. I thought that was a part of the sport like that I didn't understand happened 
because you three were so vocal on the, on the race course that I just thought that was some part of it I overlooked. It and, really carries on course. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, so part of like part of it, well, I shouldn't say part of it. It was all psychological. Like we, we love doing that. I mean, I'm sure it didn't make Bracken race better when he heard it. Minus he made moves too early. Like, a lot of people didn't like it. Some people loved it. It was, I don't think it's kind of in, uh, there's not much in between there. Um, I don't think Matt Novakovich liked it when we did it a lot. Every time I would do that when passing him, he would just like glare at me. Um, he doesn't like anything during races other than winning. That's true. I thought it was a Roo. I didn't know it was Yip or whatever it was. So, so keep going. So you started your coaching business. Start my coaching business. Um, started training a lot more consistently, kind of full-time training, full-time coaching. And things took off from there. I've had a good client roster for the past few years. Pandemic has definitely put a little little stagnancy in that. Um, so I do have spots open on my roster right now, which is nice. Uh, that doesn't happen often. And then started working my way up the ranks in um, racing as well, in obstacle course racing. And as you mentioned, took fifth in the world championship last year in Tahoe, and then also did win the U.S. Mountain Series um, for Spartan Race. Well, that's something I want to I want to touch on um, because I did a little digging before this, and you and I actually have followed a similar progression at the national champion or worlds. You've been a little ahead of me. What were you at your first world champs? I know it. You just tell the people. Oh, t- that first one was so bad. I cramped on top of the mountain and had to hobble my way down. I think it was like 40 something, 40th, 50 something. 53rd. You were 53rd. That's amongst, that's, yeah, you were 53rd. Was that that first year in Tahoe? Yes. Yes. And Bracken was like 49th or something, I believe. 48th. I hobbled down the mountain too. I remember seeing Bracken on the bucket carry halfway down the mountain on the backside and be like, he's hurting worse than I am. I'm doing way better than Bracken looks. Yeah, you, you oh. still beat me, but it was, oh, it was gnarly. Well, the point I'm making is, so you were 53rd at your first year at Spartan. I was 58th my first year at, at Spartan Worlds. What were you your second year, Ian? I think you got hurt your second year. You rolled an ankle or something. Yes, I DNF'd on the first climb. Somehow I rolled my ankle going uphill. I went by you screaming bloody murder. You were screaming bloody murder on that mountain. That was my first Tahoe experience. I'd come by you. <laughs> You, it was when we had descended into, I thought, descended into the festival area. And you were, we had, scre- at least that's where I saw you. We had just come out of the festival area and were on that climb. And there was a small downhill section that I, like, 10, 15 feet descent. And I hit a rock and just, <laughs> just it went, and it went bad. I think it was grade two. Mm-hmm. I, I was behind you when that happened. But anyway, so you went from 53rd, you DNF'd, and then what were you your next year you completed Tahoe? 14th. Okay, and then what were you the next year you completed Tahoe? Ninth. And then what were you the last year you completed Tahoe? Fifth. Look at that. I remember it all. Somebody would call. I went 58th, 21st, 11th. Okay, I'm a year behind you. Maybe we'll, we'll get into the top 10 next year. But point being is that is like an incredible progression in this sport. That is not an easy. I know how hard I've had to work to, to make the progression I've made. And I have a running background. I had been running competitively since I was 13. You do not. And so... I want to know, and this is like, you could take this any direction you want, but since you brought us to this point, like what, how does somebody do that? How does somebody do that? I would argue it's like the most standard thing you would see in endurance athletics. Like that's, that's a standard progression. If you do what you're supposed to be doing for five to six years, 53rd to fifth. 
if you come in as a nubile in the sport. If you come in as a new person, you have the genetic background, like that, like I have the genetic background. I've had, I've been training my entire life, not necessarily in endurance athletics, but some form or another have been athletic. Um, and like, that's the progression you'll see. Endurance is a long-term gain sport. And I wouldn't expect someone to see where they want to be in a sport until they're hitting year three or four. And that's if they've been doing everything properly for three to four years. Uh, you see that in high school, you see that in track, uh, in college, um, across the board in endurance athletics, the longer you do it up until a certain point, the faster you're going to get if you stay injury free and are consistently progressing. And those are the two biggest things is you have to like, you need to avoid major injuries and you need to continue to train properly and progress properly. Well, um, like I said, there's a lot of ways you could take this. And I agree with you completely, of course. Um, and you have to enjoy the process and you have to do the little things day in and day out. And it adds up into future long-term success. But walk me, could you be a little more specific with your progression? Was it was it following your basic principles that you believed in and slowly ramping up intensity and volumes over years? Was it simply allowing the consistency of training to eventually, you know, sink in slowly over time. Like when you look back, how would you look at, you know, from like a broad stroke, how would you look at that progression from like a training point of view, like a little more specifically, just so people can understand. Absolutely. And it, it is all of the above everything you said. Mm -hmm. um, it's progressing in the beginning, not running a huge amount of volume. Um, last year before the performance in Tahoe, I was doing the most volume I've ever done in my life. Um, two or three weeks before Tahoe, there was a race in Whistler uh, where I won the entire weekend. But I did that and I was a zombie on my feet. I was dead to the world for all rights. But it showed my fitness was there even with that huge amount of fatigue. Um, so building volume over time and the rule of thumb I use with people is no more than 10% per week. Um, and I always go by time distance, unless you're on roads or track is really not applicable. Uh, if you're in the mountains or on trails, go by time. Um, so progressing there and making sure you're doing it consistently. Yes, you could have a couple months of good training, but if you get a setback and then you're off for six months, that's not going to stack well long-term. So you need to make sure you're, you're doing those progressions, but you're doing it consistently and doing everything in your power to make sure you have that consistency to fall back on. Um, you mentioned the small things day in and day out. I've had more minor injuries than almost anyone I know. I've, I have bad ankles. I've had tendonitis in both legs, uh, Achilles. I have subluxed my shoulder repeatedly over the years. One of the nice things I've never had stress fractures, so that's good. I know how to deal with them. Um, I've had shin splints, both anterior and posterior. I've had collapsing arches. I've had neuromas. You name the running injury minus stress fracture, I've dealt with it. Bone bruises. Um, so adding that into my toolbox over time has been really helpful as well. So when I feel small things coming on, I know the steps to take it to take to make sure it doesn't progress into a full blown issue. But I have had some minor setbacks here and there. Well, I see. I see coming from Nike, being around high level athletes, or at least that philosophy high mileage athletes, uh, you were able to have the perspective there 
Because a lot of people that enter our sport hear about, they see Ryan Atkins does this crazy day out in the mountains, and they see Ian Hosick does these back-to-back long runs in prep for Tahoe, and Bracken's out doing 100 miles on the bike, showing off, you know, flexing his muscles. You didn't let you didn't get caught up in that. You you knew better from the start than to go try to mimic the volume that the high level pros were doing. And I think that's a valuable lesson for people to hear because high volume to you at the time might have meant four hours of time on feet. Now it means ten hours of time on feet. And I just think it's an important lesson. You trusted the process. You saw the long game. You weren't in a hurry. I mean, I'm putting words in your mouth, but I assume those are all true. And I think people need to hear that. Those were really good words. Uh, be patient and take the steps needed that you know will get you there. Sometimes that's working with a coach because it's, it's not always listening to yourself is the easiest or best idea. Um, I do dumb things all the time that coach Ian says, that's stupid. And then thankfully my wife also says that's stupid and I'll listen to her because she's uh, fairly well accomplished in training and sports science as well. So that's nice. But having someone else external from you is very helpful. Um, patience, like I mentioned, and putting the work day in, day out. Yeah. Yeah. There, there's, you can't shortcut the process as an endurance athlete because A, you just never reach your ceiling that way. And B, you arrive at situations that set you up for failure. There's not, there's not like a magic skill you learn to just like circumvent the process that that long-term development sounds like what a coach would say to get people to train with them longer, right? Like, oh yeah, you got to give me three to five years. But the reality is you got to <laughs> give yourself three to five years. We, it doesn't matter wh- who gets you there. You can't as- expect that, all right, year one, I did this. Year two, I do this. Year three, I'm on the podium at Worlds. Unless you're a freak or you came from a different sport with a high level of, of endurance base already in there. It, it's just not, that's not the way life works. And then circling back to what you mentioned, Kirk, about not doing what the other pros uh, we're doing, um, in terms of volume, I've always been very unique and done things my own way and not necessarily followed the crowd or followed the herd. Um, but another thing on that is I saw firsthand the bad side of doing that. Like I've seen athletes go directly into high volume or ramp up too quickly after a serious injury and get immediately re-injured or something else crops up. Um, I hate to use Amelia Boone cause I've like, but she is the example in OCR, like stress fracture came back too quickly, other problem. Um, yes, I mean, that coupled with an eating disorder is definitely going to cause problems now that she's let everyone know. It sounds like she's making fantastic work, but high volume, too quick, regardless of the situation, will lead to ruin unless you are genetically gifted and have tendons of steel and bones of titanium. Yeah. How many runners in just in America have we had that were so phenomenal and then disappeared? And it was always a what could have been story because they could do 100 mile weeks in high school and they won national championships and set junior world records and got to college and won a national title or two. And then we're gone. Never heard of again because some people say they're fragile. Other people would argue you you got to too high of a level too quick. You unlocked a skill you didn't need yet. And I mean, our bodies are very adaptive machines. If you put a stress on it, it will adapt if you give it the space and grace to. The same goes for tendons and ligaments and bones. However, those adapt much, much slower than our muscles. So often you'll Mm -hmm. see people doing muscle things and the tendons are the weak link in the whole system or your bones are. Those things take the stress patterns, but it's a much longer process of getting to where they need to be. And if you don't put the stress on them, like doing the small nitty gritty 
dumb hip workouts that you need to do, they're not going to adapt at all. It'll just be that single stress pattern over and over and repetitive stresses can lead to injuries. Hmm. I want to outline, um, your last two seasons, uh, both of your last two seasons, I believe 2018 and 2019, 19 in particular, um, you had a slower start, at least from the outside looking in, there were some mishaps on the course and some other stuff, you know, miss spear here and whatever. And then you've gradually both years really like exponentially increased your output, your performance, and thus your results. And you peaked at the right time, the last, probably all the last years you've, you've done this. So we talk periodization and, and I actually, in my brain lumped you and Robert Killian in the same boat this last year because he did the same progression. It looked a little different than yours. Now I'm wondering, is that by design? Because I believe you finished in the mid-teens the first two years or the first two races of the U.S. National Series, then finished fifth at Worlds. Was that by design or was that by uh, being a mountain specialist and and those things? I just want to know how you feel about that. It's by design in terms of volume um, and in terms of like peak fitness. So I do want to be peaking fitness-wise later in the season so I can have my best performances at those high level races or high competitive races. Um, and it's not by design in the fact that most of those poor performances were heavily mental on my side. Like the fitness was there in relative to the field. Um, I just had some very poor race performances this past. I mean, the only race you and I have done on the Spartan series this year was Jacksonville where both you and I had a garbage performance mm-hmm. and, I could, I know I attribute that performance to my mental state and not being able to push where I needed to or have a good race and be competitive. I, I've talked to you outside of this and it sounds mm-hmm. like you were in a several place. Um, mm-hmm. So it's, it depends on which aspect you look at it. Um, definitely, I don't want to be peak fitness coming directly into the season. You cannot hold that for an extended period of time. Otherwise, you'll fall apart. And you see that with a lot of athletes in our sport, especially you'll see they do really great in two races. Mid-season shows up and they have all sorts of fun things going on where they can't compete or even train like they want to. So that's something I avoid uh, by really stacking volume in the beginning, Uh, at least running volume. I'll still supplement it with uh, non-impact cardio or alternative modalities. And then just finding your groove. That's, that's a big part of it too. Uh, I've recently started working with sports psychologist and race brain trainer essentially uh, over the past two years. And I have noticed a difference. And now once you find your groove, it's about holding that and being able to tap into that when you. Yeah. It's funny. We talk about it a lot that it takes an entire career to build up your race brain and it takes one bad moment to, to lose it. And then you have to build it back up again. I've found that having a bad moment for me is actually much better to finding your race brain again. Because one of my difficulties that I struggle with is like putting forth the effort that I know I can. And so if I have a bad race and I know I didn't give it my all, I'm like, well, we're not doing that again. That's stupid. It has a bad performance. I don't like how I feel. Try harder. Do you create narratives in your brain? Like, let's say... Like this season I'm referring to, the first couple of races didn't go as you had wanted the last year I'm talking. And do you create a narrative in your brain to then be like, people think they count me out again? Like, do you like to play that underdog role? Because for some reason, I feel like you fit that a little bit, even though you don't at all based on your world champs performances. Is that part of your mentality at all? Not really. One of the things that is 
a, a blessing for me is I, I really don't care a lot of what about other people think that doesn't necessarily dictate my race strategy or racing. I'm very internal. And my biggest limiter is releasing my own expectations of myself. So often I'll put these expectations on and then not meet them, or they inhibit the race in a certain way. So letting those go, going in with a plan, executing that plan to the best of your ability, and taking all of the external and internal added baggage, we'll say, and removing that. That's a tough thing to do in our sport. Because our sport has a stranger beginning than any other foot race I've ever done in which there's a herd of people that don't necessarily belong where they start. And (laughs) because of bottlenecks or obstacles or people getting out really hot, if your expectation is that you are never outside of the podium, you might be sitting in 16th at Jacksonville, you know, in a good position, at a pace that you should be at. And it feels like you've been spit out the back. Whereas like in a, in a, on the track, if you're running a 10 K, everyone's in the same pack running the exact same strategy. It's just whose talent wins out and who starts their move earlier or on the roads in the marathon, there might be some hangers on in your pack, but you kind of start in the position you're going to finish. You're just next to the people where OCR, you might be 80 yards down from someone and they're out of sight. And now it's 200 yards and you're thinking all my strategies out. And if, if you're not just relaxed and happy with competing, there's something I struggle with that, that perception of podium ability like if i can't see the podium my race is a failure that's a tricky thing in our sport and that's like that's exactly what i'm talking about those are internal expectations you're putting on yourself i'm sure there are fans and friends who want you to do well but they're not applying pressure to you to do well sponsors maybe that's a different thing that's income based um but yeah letting those go the nice thing is I think we're shifting more towards a better environment for that with the gated corrals and having like at least in Spartan races and OCR, we are making gated corrals and you have to have a certain level of performance performances in the past to actually get into that heat. Um, so that is a positive. Hopefully we see that trend up in the future. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. I came into the sport before both of you and that subsection of the population used to be able to hang on for 800 meters max. Usually 400. So you just get out like normal, a good solid first two, 250, start settling in knowing that they're already wheezing on my shoulder and they'll be gone. Now we have this hungry generation of fit athletes who all believe they belong. And that's making the start corral really, really difficult, especially in a Jacksonville or in Alabama, a place where it's going to be fast and these guys can hang for a couple miles now. Also, I mean, if you look, this is something I always, uh, refer back to the depth of field in the, the men's field is much higher than the depth of field in women's. Mm-hmm. Um, my time, our Kirk's in my time, uh, in Jacksonville was only like a two, two and a half, three minutes off of the winning time. And for that distance of a race is it's decent. It's pretty far back, but it's also not huge. Whereas you look at the women's field and that time would have put us top five or almost. That, on would, the that would have put us on the podium time gap wise. Yeah. 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 And right behind you and right behind the next guy, that guy was only 10 seconds behind you. It goes all the way to 15 or 20, mm-hmm. which is, I don't know, it's kind of fun. It's also, it's like you can't show up and uh, it's like every ounce of every decision of every, everything just factors in like that second it less over the wall and this and that. It's amazing. And we had talked about this about Ryan Atkins. Like, I'm sure you went and watched the race back and watching how he just cut seconds on every little damn thing. It was a, it was a work of art. I would almost, if, if I haven't seen a race that was a work of art since starting this, that was the closest thing to it. 
on Ryan Atkins's behalf. And that's what our sport has come to in order to win. I it was after, a work of art. After watching that, I was like, okay, Ian switches how he goes over walls now. That is uh, four seconds I lost because of how I go over walls yeah. versus that speed wall. And it's a really cool time to be in the sport. Unfortunately, it means that some people's time at the top is done. But what this means is that our sport's becoming a sport, not a hobby. Professional sports come down to the smallest of margins. The closer your finish is, the more legitimate your sport is. If one mistake ends your day, you're a pretty legitimate sport. If you can screw up all over the place, do 90 burpees, go off course and still win, it means your sport's not really that deep yet. So this depth of field we're experiencing in the women's field is a couple years behind, but they are now light years ahead of where they were 10 years ago and five years ago. It means our sport's really maturing. And that's exciting to be a part of at the expense of some nervous racing because you know now that it's there's there's not room to mess up. It's not guaranteed every time no. you show up to a race. No, it always blows my mind. I, I watch a lot of track races during my non-impact cardio. I really am bored out of my mind indoors, so I always watch stuff. And it gets me all pumped up. But every single important race, almost in the last like two decades of track, has not been decided until the last one to 20 seconds of the race. With 30 seconds to go, there are still five to 15 people who all truly believe they're about to win. And we are not there yet, but we're starting to get there and that's cool. Yeah, and I mean, that's also been a shift in track though in general. Like the kick has definitely become more apparent over the mm -hmm. past like two decades, I would argue, as opposed to someone just from the gun leaving their guts on the track like people it's very rare to see someone go all out to their full capacity de depending on the distance for sure but yeah. it's definitely been a larger deciding factor and i think that does speak to depth of field and training because it's too hard to drop people in our sport it used to be yeah get out really hard the first two miles coast the next six and you've got to win track used to be able to you could drop a lot of people and now everyone's got the fitness and the gear and the training to to make it laid into the race. So and yeah, this, this does play into a downside though. So if you're not running your own race yet, you're the fittest one there just can't kick the best. Yep. Uh, you can lose races instead of just going running your own race and winning because you know, you're the fittest and fastest you play everyone else's mind games and then they outkick you in the last 200. Yeah. Mm -hmm. How many times at world championships did Mo Farah come in as maybe, maybe not the most talented racer and he walked out with the win every time because no one decided, hey, I'm going to lose anyways. I'm going to try to break him. They always talked that they were going to try to break him beforehand and no one ever did. And luckily we don't have that no CR yet. Pretty much everyone runs to their max capacity in each race or, or what, what they perceive their max capacity is. Yeah, or they, I mean, at the top, you are seeing different race strategies. So you look at Tahoe last year, which we keep going back to. Atkins, uh, who took second, Ryan Atkins was, I think he was in like late, the early teens. Um, and then just. We, we summited that first climb together in roughly 10th to 11th place. And he put on 10 minutes from that point on me to the rest of the race. Yeah, and he just uh. started as like picking people off one by one. Um, whereas you look at Robert Killian who won, who went out hard from the entire race and Atkins was reeling him in at the end. He like another mile Atkins probably would have had him, but mm -hmm. he went out, ran his own race and did win. Even though yeah. some people could argue he may not have been the fittest person that day. I just think, I think our, I don't know if our sport will ever get there 
because one duration of a lot of our races and two, like there's just enough like variation in obstacles where like the gaps are just going to form, like it's getting closer, but I don't know if we'll ever get to the point. There's just too many, too many different things that create gaps along the way. Maybe, I mean, hopefully we do, but I, I mean, a five second finish, you know, five seconds, 10 seconds apart, click, click, click. That might be as close as we get to a sprint finish in the depth of field, I would think, which we've already been seeing, but it might go all the way through 10th, 15th place eventually. It's, but it's similar in like the trail running world. Like you don't see mm -hmm. the longer the race, obviously the greater disparity between placements you yeah. can see. Yeah. 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 We have things like bottlenecks that erase large packs. Yes. Mm -hmm. Should we, um, I, I think I would like to, from this point, other than, I guess, before we move on to this compromise running thing and training philosophy, which I think we're, we need to shift you because I know this conversation is going to tangent a bunch. I just want to know uh, what your plans are right now, like what you've been doing for training and what your philosophy is currently amidst sort of this gray area that we're all in before racing resumes. Like, how are you looking at this for yourself and, and maybe some of your athletes? It's finding motivation where I can. Like, I've been on and off in terms of motivational swings. Like I'm motivated to do something and then I get a lull either because there's an announcement or like the pandemic worsens, any number of things. Um, but it's finding things that do motivate you and that you can work towards. Uh, there's a couple local things I've wanted to do. There's a local FKT around here uh, that I have my eye on. Um, so I've been training some towards that. I'm not doing peak fitness training by any means or full volume. I am doing maintenance as well as enough fit, like maintaining my fitness. So I know I can get uh, and go after the targets I want to. Um, and that's what I'm doing with my athletes as well as finding things that excite them um, that they can pursue towards. And that looks different for different people. Some people are working through injuries uh, that they came to me with. Others are PRing their half marathon outside of an event, which is even crazier because like, doing a solo run for 13.1 miles is pretty tricky um, or doing things they've never done. So like a 50 K or longer distance runs or finding specific routes that really appeal to them. Um, really fun mountain runs or like a things like that. Do you think that if you're concerned about 21 or 2021's racing season, that even in this time you should aim for peaks and recovery periods, or do you think it's okay to sort of, ebb and flow with motivation and training right now? I think you have to be adaptive on both directions. So if you do do peaks, um, make sure you're doing them smart and you're not just running like 60 mile weeks and then doing a 10 mile week, four weeks in a row, and then going back to a 60 mile week. That's usually not a good way to go. That's, that mm -hmm. is asking for injury or problems that you then are going to have to deal with beyond that. So if you do lose motivation, like progress back to where you were or be smart about it. Um, and I'm still doing like the same maintenance, like building to deload cycles or recovery weeks. Those are definitely needed in there. Uh, and also be patient with yourself. This It's a very hard time in the world. So listening to certain needs, mostly mentally, um, and taking daily life stresses into account with as well. Okay. I was just curious what you were telling people because there's like a lot of different directions you could go trying to get as sharp and fast as possible and time trialing like crazy to set new life PRs or go crushing long runs or just 
kind of letting intuitively training, so to speak. So you don't, you know, burn out or for no reason and things like that. So I think there's just a lot of different ways to look at it right now. And I think it's a hot topic. Yeah. It's, and it's, I, it's very individual to the athlete. Like certain athletes do want to go out and crush PRs or like prep for next season, like find that new level of fitness so they can hit 2021 uh, running fast. Um, and then others don't have that motivation or it's more difficult for them to find. So you're going to have to look elsewhere and to things that do excite them. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think everything you've talked about today comes down to balance and intentionality, right? With, with your training, with your volume, with your mindset, with how you're progressing the off season, you're, you're pretty consistent in that you have to find what works for you right now and you've got to do it correctly. If you're doing it haphazardly, it's not going to work. And if you're flitting around, it's not going to work. I mean, it'll work in not showing the results you want to see. <laughs> That's true. That is, it, definitely it will be works. effective. It will not be effective towards your goal. Yes, exactly. So I want to preface the next phase of this conversation then. I'm happy with that answer, Ian. Um, <laughs> you did a podcast with Benny Gifford on Obstacle Dominator maybe like a month ago or something. And for some reason, it was j it was more Benny bringing up the difference in philosophies between you and Bracken. Okay, Benny is the host of Obstacle Dominator. And Benny is now being coached by you, Ian. And in the past, he had been coached by Bracken. <laughs> and so he... Well, kind of loosely. Well, loosely. And and Benny self-admits he likes to hop around to different coaches and learn their philosophy and then move to the next. And so whatever. It has nothing to do with he, he was saying Bracken was a phenomenal coach if he coached you and whatever along the way. But Benny kept making the comparative between your two coaching styles constantly through that episode. It wasn't you saying, I don't believe in Bracken's philosophy. You were complimenting it in your own right at times. Um, so I'm just gonna play like a little bit of moderator here, Ooh. so to speak. Uh, well, I mean, because you two were the ones who were kept coming up in Bracken and I, we fall in the same philosophy, I feel like in a sense. So that's why this, this is how this conversation started was Benny kept saying, oh, Ian and Bracken, you train so differently and here are the opposing philosophies and, and Ian doesn't have me doing any compromise running because he thinks it's stupid and that I'm, I'm paraphrasing and Bracken had me doing a lot and blah, blah, blah. So then it came up where Bracken's like, we just need to have Ian on so we can, we can chat this out like two mm -hmm. good old boys would do. And that's kind of the stem of why we even were talking to start with because that piqued our interest. Yeah. So tell that's, me more. Tell me more about reason. this. No, it's not the only reason, but it's the reason you were on our short list of people we wanted to chat with soon. So what? What would? Let's open that floor up. I, I don't care who wants to start. Can we start with Bracken or you defining compromised running? Because yes. I hear that term all the time and it can mean a lot of different things. So in your yeah. sense, what does that mean? I, I always used to use the term fatigued running. Kirk used compromised running and it seemed to grab people's ears. So we use that now. But mm -hmm. when I talk compromised or fatigued running, I mean attempting to run once you have been depleted from a non-running source. Okay. So getting tired in a marathon is not compromised running. Although you could say it was like for the Olympic trials, the hills, the ups and descents in Atlanta compromise people's ability to run normally. So it's an external factor that compromises your ability to run normally, whether that is fatigue or pounding or just overall ex um, muscular exhaustion, something that changes your ability to run as you normally would, which in our sport looks like coming off of a heavy carry or being dizzy out of a crawl or pounding downhill for two and a half miles and then having to, to climb again afterwards or anything like that. 
yeah. transitioning from obstacles with extra fatigue than what you originally had running. So I agree with that. That definition is verbatim what I would say. Now, what I heard, and because I'm just self-proclaimed playing moderator suddenly, I literally heard your philosophy almost being the same thing as what we actually believe, just maybe verbalized in a different way. And so I think that there's like a, more parallels than than perpendiculars, I would say, here. So um, I think I want to start this with with like your your underlying reasoning behind not doing a lot of compromise. Right? And and I know what it is, but why don't you echo it again? I know you had spoken about it on the podcast. Absolutely. With Benny, but yeah, echo, echo it again if you could. Yeah. So the reason I don't implement that with my training or coaching is because I isolate specific stimulus and adaptations from a targeted workout. Um, it's the same reason I don't mix like tempo running and intervals or long endurance runs and just smash them all together. I find a specific silo, have someone target that those physiological adaptations, smash that to a certain extent. Um, and by smashing, I mean, go to their maximum capacity, possibly take them a little beyond so they can progress and adapt to that. And the reason I do this is to get the most out of each adaptation. The theory I have slash backed by science to some extent is when you mix adaptations, and this is probably, I'm, I'm looking forward to the debate. Um, when you mix adaptations, you are limiting, sorry, when you mix stimuli, you're limiting the adaptations in both of those stimulus areas. Um, so if we say we'll just categorize interval work and aerobic work, if you mix interval work with aerobic work, you're not going to get the most out of your intervals and you're not going to get the most out of your aerobic session. Um, so you separate those so you can maximize that. That goes especially with strength training and running. However, I do have times where I mix that occasionally for biomechanical reasons and muscle recruitment reasons, not necessarily to elicit fatigued muscle states like you guys do. Yeah. Hmm? I don't, there's not a flaw in that. Hmm. I think that in a vacuum is the best way to maximize anything where if you want your speed and you want your strength, they have to be worked independently. And in a perfect world, I would never stray from that. The reason I started with this is because I personally back in 2010 struggled with it. I was functionally strong. I was functionally fast. But I found that obstacle movements, when I came in with a high heart rate, tired me in a way that changes in my physical training didn't necessarily pair, where I could see on paper I'd gotten faster, I could see on paper that I had gotten stronger in several modalities, but there was some overlapping skill that I, they totally didn't bind together in a one-to-one -one way. And so I started messing around with that. But I would agree that if you were a responder to both, you should not work them together because you would inherently put a ceiling on the other one. So I don't, I don't have an argument there. I also would say that the longer the race, the less important it is to ever combine them. If I were training for Tahoe, and I think I've said this before, the only compromise running I would ever do is the compromise that a downhill has on your uphill and your uphill has on your downhill. Which is just running. Yeah, mm -hmm. so, and yeah, it would yeah, be all right. hill reps, right? To use Benny as an example, his stated goal for the year was to win the 100-yard short course and the 3,000-meter short course at Worlds. 
And I believe that the closer the obstacles are together, the more it's important to hone that skill of transitions and being able to operate in a highly acidic nature as, as fast and as hard as you can. And so if, again, if I were training you, Kirk, for Tahoe, there would be very little compromise running. If I were training for a stadium, I would have a, a pretty high presence of compromise running in my routine. I did no compromise running the last six weeks leading into Tahoe, just because I yeah. share the same philosophy. And something I just want to, I want to outline that that we're parallel down and you two are parallel down. Again, Bracken and I, we can kind of lump ourselves in the same philosophy, is that we firmly believe in working the stimulus separately in which we do. Mm-hmm. We lift heavy and purposeful to gain max strength gains in the gym and, and to work in balances as weaknesses. And we work run workouts separately with purposeful intent um, the difference is, is that we choose to mash them together on occasion. Um, and you don't, that's literally really the, that's really the difference. So instead of, instead of doing a purposeful work where we're trying to improve our lactate threshold one day, we're just going to go work hard and practice transitional running or compromise running. So maybe you could look at as that as a shortcoming, of course, because we are losing purposeful adaptation that day. But you could also just chalk it up as well. At least I know what transitioning in a short course race is going to feel like. And at least mentally, I can wrap my head around it. So I feel like the only real difference there isn't in the core principles on both ends. It's what's it's like the jelly in the middle of the sandwich, you know? I mean, I, I so far, I agree with everything you guys have said. Uh, <laughs> yeah, oh yeah, yeah. I think especially since Bracken has traditionally been a shorter course athlete and a lot of the people he works with are shorter course athletes. Um and something both of you have said now, and the word skill and intent. So if I, and you mentioned I would never do that, that's not true. I've had athletes, I've built protocols for athletes to get better at transitions, but mm-hmm. it's not for getting physiological adaptations. It is for working on the mental side of transitions and what that feels like and obstacle efficiency and smoothness. And my, this is very good for me because a lot of, the understanding I had was because you're it's better for training. And that's like the maximum detail I would get for compromised running. If you're viewing compromised running as a supplement to help gain obstacle efficiency, uh, that is great. And at one of the problems we face in obstacle course racing is you get larger programs like Yancey camp or um, what was your old thing? Bracken leaderboard. Yeah, those two really had a large amount of following. And back in the day, they had a very large media presence. They still do. And you get a lot of individuals who go into those programs and don't have the time needed to be a professional athlete. So you do get a lot of that mixed stimulus happening just to get some of both worlds, not the best of both worlds. Mm -hmm. Uh, When I talk to you guys, who you could argue are like the founders of compromised running in obstacle course racing you i'm getting a much better side of it and i'm seeing that it's not for the physiological side it is for the mental side and efficiency and i have no problem with that like i i've done that myself i've done a run tired an example would be a compromised spear throw i come back from a tempo run and try and hit my spear it's a lot harder than just practicing in the yard yes i still practice independently so the skill-based part of it is there but doing it in a mentally fatigued state Mm -hmm. And I have no problem with that. I just, 
I would say the percentages are probably different for our coaching on how often we would implement that. I mean, I'm almost never or extremely rare with my athletes, but I also coach longer endurance race towards athletes. Mm -hmm. The best compromise run I've ever seen you do, Ian, was before Tahoe, when you ran up a mountain, ran home, bathed in ice cold water. Yeah. And then went and ran up another mountain and came down. What you were doing in a sense, is preparing your body to just at least know what that feeling and stimulus felt like so you could come out of it effectively. And so you were, I mean, you were, in a sense, doing very, for a very purposeful reason. You could chalk that up as yeah. compromised running or I, just like stimulus. I, I think yeah. my biggest issue might be the term compromised running or like the the terminology or the overarching name. Because mm-hmm. what you just talked about, no one would say is compromised running. Like I didn't pick up a kettlebell or do anything, a strength movement, but it does it's fall true. under your umbrella of compromised running. So maybe we could brainstorm to something. Yeah. Well, I feel like if you took a regular trail or track or road race, anything that changes the stimulus to what you'd normally be doing compromises you. If it's submersion in ice cold water, you are now in a compromised mode. And so that's how we talk about it. now. I'm a big believer in training the mental game. I really am. And I believe that when we get into short races, they hurt so badly. And in interval work, it's the only way we can work that hard, but there's always a rest and we're hitting an intensity we're supposed to hit. I believe that from time to time, the only way to ever know how terrible Jacksonville can hurt is to do some sort of simulation of that. And so I really do love the mental side, but uh, go back and maybe ruffle some feathers, Ian. I do actually believe there's a physiological component to this. Again, if I were training for a marathon, I would not do compromise running. If I was training for a mile, I wouldn't do compromise running. But there is some, now this is, there's not much science behind this because there hasn't been a populist that ever gave the, the monetary incentive to a lab to study this. If Nike gets into obstacle course racing and they're interested, I'll give you some contacts and you can talk to them about. I would love to, but there is some amount of research that shows when your muscles get in a highly acidic state, when those hydrogen ions are starting to go on overdrive and you are in lactate overload, that there is a little bit of skill that comes into play of recruiting muscle fibers that when an untrained athlete encounters lactate in overload in their muscles, they recruit a smaller percentage of muscle fibers than someone who has dealt with that situation before. Um, That has been explored a little bit. Now, what we could say is that if you just lift hard and then run hard, you're going to encounter those states and get better at them. And I believe, firmly believe that there is a unexplored skill set in our sport that we have certain movements and depletion levels that we cause with our strange mix of hard anaerobic exertion with high anaerobic anaerobic tinged running that we can actually get better at keeping a higher recruitment level and a higher efficiency level when we encounter those states. I mean, that's good for one of the workouts I have my athletes do, uh, but okay. I will, I will add, I'll, ask a question to that study because it sounds like okay. you actually have a white paper like a peer-reviewed pr- published journal article i don't have it i read it oh. i have i can find it but it's not here in front of me okay well n- not right now but like i would like to see that data uh because i was going to ask you a question about the study itself like did they I do not know okay <laughs> my question <laughs> would be uh the normal runner versus trained athlete 
-hmm. what percent, like, even if they're non running in an acidic state, what percentage of muscle fibers are they already recruiting? Because if they're parallel there, and the the elite athlete is already recruiting 95% of their muscle fibers, and the untrained athlete is recruiting 60. And if they go into that uh, acidic state and the untrained athlete goes to like 65 and the yeah. other one goes to a hundred, like, or like if the Delta is different yeah. or not as big, then that it would be counterintuitive. However, uh, I, there is a workout I like to have athletes do where they are lifting and engaging their posterior chain and running muscles and then going directly into strides. Um, yeah. and an example would be like, 12 by two deadlifts at 70 75% of your three rep max um, into 45 second strides with like a minute rest or something mm -hmm. like that. Yeah. And mm -hmm. that, that essentially from what I've heard you say, that would kind of accomplish that, especially towards Certainly. the tail, tail end of that workout when you are more acidic and you haven't been processing those ions out as much as you can. Or Absolutely. Could. And in this like perfect world, you and I are in a Nike lab testing this out long term on actual real athletes because I'd love to know, does it only take 45 seconds of strides or does it take a thousand meters afterwards with the accumulation of run fatigue now paired? These are the things I want to know. Um, I will say this as well, that I see a lot of parallels between what we do in our sport and what happens in other areas of our lives or in other sports where you get better at something just because you know how it feels. Um, for example, um, watching my wife give birth three times, knowing how bad it was and knowing what she could handle, she got better every single time. Hmm. She she wasn't, it wasn't easier, but her perception of effort was different and her perception yeah. of pain and her expectation of it is. And I've just yet to find something that hurts like an OCR race other than an OCR workout. Um, I believe that, that that mental knowing, all right, I've come off this with my arms unable to lift up before, and it used to take me 60 seconds before they were usable again, and now it's eight seconds. You know, that I believe there are trainable um, aspects of this when we do heavy swimming races. Um, I don't know if you've ever done a block of training like this, but I've done essentially brick intervals, swim hard, get out, and just click right into CV pace. And in the beginning of my block of training, it takes me a long time and I can hit CV effort and nowhere near CV pace. But within two to three weeks, that skill has improved. I can't point to, it's not technically a shunting thing because I don't think my blood's moving any quicker. That, that term gets thrown around a lot. I don't think it's that my fitness has rise be, or risen because my 5K hasn't gotten any faster. My aerobic threshold hasn't changed, but I'm now able to transition from one skill to the other and regain the use of the other skill at an incredibly reduced time period. And whether we're talking skill or whether your muscle recruitment's getting better, I don't have science to put behind it, but I have 10 years of testing it on myself that I know there's some truth there. And if I could start a doctoral thesis on anything, that's what I would choose right now because I know there's truth to this training. It's that's neurological. Like that is there are yeah. there are mm -hmm. a lot of things out there that says if we do this hard thing and then have you run this pace, it's gonna feel easier than doing that pace in the oh, beginning. Oh, for sure. But I believe there's more. I truly do. I can't prove it, and so I wouldn't market it. <laughs> I wouldn't write a book on it and say I've discovered this new thing, but I'm truly intrigued by it. Mm -hmm. Um and then I guess I'll just finish by saying 
I think I do this less than people think I do. Well, I, I based on our conversation, we both do. We I, both do. Based on our conversation and like what you guys have explained to me and the understanding I've come to, mm-hmm. I would absolutely agree with that. I would say my average training block throughout the year, if you averaged all my training blocks that I write and that I do, it averages out to once every 10 to 14 days. Yeah. And that's not much at all. I was under the impression it was like two to three times a week. I'm once every I'm once every 14 days is what I am. I treat it like periodization though. Yeah. The closer I get to my, my competition, the more sports specific I get. There are times I'm doing it two to three times a week before a big stadium series race. I might for two or three weeks do it three times a week before the biggest stadium race of the year. Yeah, but that also goes back to like a short race that it's very important and that exactly skill, that skill and that neurological transition is very important. Whereas like the races I compete in and a lot of my clients, mm-hmm. I mean they're running around mountains for a couple hours. Exactly. So I would say this. I like adding in wad-based work from time to time as a standalone, and I count that as compromised work. If you're doing an EMOM or a wad, I believe that fits the same the same principle. I would also challenge Benny to send you his uh, a screenshot of his protocol that he did for like a nine-week build. I would be surprised if he had any compromised run for the first six weeks. So I know we're known as the compromised run people because we love compromised running. And I do believe there are some physiological benefits from it, but I think that uh, I'm going to throw a non-scientific number out there. I'm going to say 90% of the benefits happen between the ears and in skill development, pairing the two skills together. I would say that less than 10% is physiological, and that's the 10% I want to explore. And I mean, based on this conversation, I I don't know if I can actually say this without getting a bad taste in my mouth. You could argue that I implement compromised running in my training once every 21 days to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. I mean, well, and that would be so- like targeted workouts, like uh, the the deadlifting workout I talked about, or like I'd call them muscle recruitment workouts, just different name, yep. but it sounds like that is essentially it. Before you go, Kirk, I do want to say something. Um, there are people that I program every single week for, sometimes twice a week for. But at least one of them is aerobic the whole time. Aerobic carries into aerobic running for people that do need the novelty in training or they will not train. Or for people who are limited physically, they cannot do a 60-minute run. But if they can do five by 12-minute rounds of eight-minute run, two-minute carry, they can get 60 minutes of aerobic work in without injuring themselves or building up an incredible amount. So there are people that I do program every single week, one or two a week, but it's more of a means to an end rather than I'd like to get them away for it over time once they've built up their capacity for work. So there are some people out there who could point to that and say, hey, I did it twice this week, but you know, it might've been power hiking uphill for five minutes and then doing burpees for two minutes and getting back on because we can't right now handle the stress of running for 40 minutes straight. And there's one other thing I want to add in because Bracken did talk about the intensity side of running. Mm -hmm. Uh, And some people might think I don't have intensity in my program. That's not true. Talk to any one of my athletes and they will tell you that that I've beat the shit out of them on certain workouts. They feel Mm -hmm. miserable. They like long tempo days or like some hard interval sessions, especially hill repeats. Like there's no mercy there. So yeah. I just have to preface that, that I'm not like, yes, the majority of your training is longer aerobic runs, but don't worry. I can make you feel pain. You're about to hear some clicking. Kirk, you start talking. I'm going to pull up my proposed training plan. I want to see how much compromise running I have in mind. 
your proposed training plan for yourself? Yeah, for this comeback and for this next year. Okay. Um, well, one, one we, we often do glorify the, the high-end work of compromise running as it's only like a inside out, I hate my life sort of effort. And it's not oftentimes it is just skill work to be implemented aerobically. So it's, and it's a lot in time prescribed for people who are injury prone and can't spend as much time on feet. So we cho choose, you know, so like a cross training hybrid or a, a compromised, a compromised type work. And I'm following that boat. But the other thing is that I think you kind of fall into two camps uh, when you look at this. And one is I've seen you race in, and you are very smooth in and out of obstacles inherently. You are good at going right back into running. And they don't seem to affect you a whole lot in a sense where like you're really good at getting right back into race pace. And that's a skill that you've either somehow inherently have or um, you have worked on in some capacity through your own your own modalities. For me, when I first got into the sport, I mean, the hit I took, sure, I was plenty strong. I was way stronger than I needed to be. I still am. However, like getting off even a stupid monkey bars for me, I'd be like, why am I so gassed right now? Well, I was holding my breath. I was recruiting more muscles than I needed to in the process things like that. So some people, it does come naturally. You feel like you're not compromised after the obstacle and can get right back to running. In, in your case, I, I think it could be a bit of wasted effort to do a lot of compromise running. In my case, for some reason, it takes like repetitive nature for me to come off an obstacle with confidence and attack it. And I need to like simulate that because that's the camp I fell in. And that's how I was humbled my first year in the sport. Maybe you never had that experience. And so, yeah, well, well it's, I mean, and a lot of guys are really smooth off of stuff. John Albin is notorious for saying he doesn't do much compromise running. And that guy is as fluid in and out of stuff, really, as anybody. And he, Christ, he wins OCR Worlds, which is the most obstacle-dense, you know, race in the world. So I think it, it maybe just has to, a lot to do with your natural tendencies as well. Yeah, but uh, I mean, if you look at the grand scheme of things, my over, like my overall training of my life, I rock climbed a significant amount for a long sure, time right. so that's gonna i mean body essentially it comes down to body awareness and how you're able to use your muscles effectively and efficiently and also like get through things smoothly i've rock yep. climbed a lot i've done strength training like combine those two that's that's easy for me uh people who don't have access to rock climbing or are scared of heights or any number of things or haven't had those experiences in their life are going to need to practice body awareness. Like I'm sure you could argue that someone get as efficient as possible on, or the most efficient person on obstacles and transitions without ever touching an obstacle, just doing like Tai Chi, you could, like, yeah, yeah. like controlled Tai Chi or body awareness, things like that, and figuring out how to move effectively across the board. And another thing is when I came into OCR, I was working with Ryan Kempson and he is heavily based in movement and functional patterns and um, everything that goes into that. So combining that with rock climbing, I've never really seen quote compromised running, but yeah. there are individuals out there who may not have this background. And I could see that being the skill the, that is lacking in their programming. And I'm glad you brought up rock climbing because it has the exact same skill that a lot of people need, which is learning to exert the maximum force necessary with the least amount of effort. Where you have to be able to hold yourself and make confident moves while being dead asleep in the rest of your body. And whether it's high rocks exposing this in a heavy sled push or a bucket carry exposing it or climbing up a thousand foot climb or going up and down stadium stairs and doing box jumps, 
You can do it intensely or you can do it relaxed and you cannot do it relaxed until you've practiced that skill. And so your ability to rock climb for years has taught you the ability to relax aggressively. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that that's really important. There are types of athletes who can relax aggressively and there are athletes who cannot. I think I'm a have not. It took me until my fifth year of college before I, I really started to nail the 800 meters because I finally mastered the skill of getting out really fast. The first 400, dead asleep, fast and relaxed, you know, aggressively relaxed. It took me five years of college running to get it. And so maybe my own personal bias should, is that because I have to exert race type simulations in order to get better at doing them relaxed, I tend to have that in my workouts. And we all know that as coaches, our personal bias can definitely affect the things we program for others. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Bracken, Bracken, what did you find? And you, you real quick before we move on from that, oh, yeah. you said you were going to tell us how many compromised run workouts you yeah, have. Yeah, I have four major types of workouts that I love. I love threshold runs. I love run intervals. I love threshold intervals. And then I have OCR work. So it's one of four major components. So even if I did them all in a row, it would take me once every two weeks, I'd be hitting it during my normal, I don't know if it'd be base building, but my normal season progression outside of base building and outside of peaking once every two weeks. However, there would be some EMOM or WAD work on one of my strength days that wouldn't necessarily be run based, but it might have transitions in it. But yeah, so one of my four main workout types that I love would have compromised running. That's every two weeks again. So it's still, the frequency is yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I believe in maximizing my running, maximizing my strength, and then I work on pairing them together. But yeah, it looks like one every two weeks for me. So I'm a compromised running guy. However, I'm a running guy and then I'm a strength guy and then I'm a mobility guy and then I'm a compromised running guy. If we rank it in terms of prevalence in my program. This is very beneficial to me, by the way, gentlemen. This is. <laughs> However, that being said, my stadium block prep, when I come into that does look very different. Yeah, but I, I, that's, I understand. That's specificity that. of sport. Um, okay, fellas, I have roughly eight minutes before I need to go to work. And I have one question I want to ask you. I'm going to pay you another compliment, Ian. And and I hope, did was there more you wanted to add to that quick bracken? I didn't, not to. No, I have a question about his training that's not compromised runs. Okay, same with me. Um, Ian, you're a you're a very strong guy for your let's just call it built, okay? Like I know you've put out numbers like uh, what you've deadlifted, for example, um, very impressive numbers. When when I look at you and and your stature, you're you're tall and you're lean. Um, you shouldn't be lifting those kind of numbers. If somebody were to just walk by you on the street, they'd be like, yeah, right. So what what's what's the key there like you are you know as as they say vj jones is what is skinny what do they call him skinny strong or something body sorcery lean body sorcery well you have some lean body sorcery going on (laughs) Uh, well well, but tell me about you so what what's the method there like how how are you so strong for your for your build uh it i actually talked to hunter mcintyre way back when so well I'll, i'll back up even before that i started working with some of the trainers at Nike specifically. And I was like, Hey man, this has a strength component. How do I get stronger? And then he told me something and I've, I've done it for the past six years. Um, and it's just like 
work on deadlifting and squats. And those are like, you can do tons of different variations between those, but those are the functional movements that I do for running. And I've just been consistent for a very long time. Like I started deadlifting and my max Mm. was like low two hundreds. And then I progressed from there. And I, like I've deadlifted on, 350 on a straight bar before um for three i think i've seen you do i thought i saw for sure three by 325 at least i've seen you post about oh yeah that i've done that before that's not a big deal um i'm much like three by 350 just so you know guys and i sorry to interrupt but what do you weigh ian roughly if you're comfortable when i was lifting that i was like 154 well 154 and he's a tall 154 because you're what six foot five eleven yeah 11 154 deadlifting deadlifting three by 350 is absolutely astounding like talk about handling your own body weight and your ability to move your own body through space is insane yeah but that so i just want to shout that out like yeah that was like when that was early last season when i was getting ready and all i did was like lift all winter (laughs) um it doesn't take away from it in my opinion Yeah, no, it's great. And I mean that like I need to work on my core is definitely my limiting factor when lifting, um, especially my back. Uh, But it's I've it's been being consistent and progressing, like not pushing it, taking recovery weeks or deload weeks. And by that, I mean, just backing off the weight, still doing some intensity um, and still doing a decent amount, just not like near max. And uh, also not going for tons of reps. So I'll normally keep my rep scheme pretty low and only do 18 or below reps at weight. Um, And usually breaking them down to even smaller sets as well. Like I'll keep, I don't do sets larger than five ever, unless it's fair. I want to be clear. When you say 18 or below, you're talking the cumulative work in your sets, not each each round. Yes. Yes. So that would be heavy working Heavy working sets. Good. Yeah. Heavy, heavy because work. we will get people who are confused on that. I want to be clear. Yeah, on that. No, absolutely. Um, well, we prescribed to this thing. Yeah. Um, but that would be like actual working sets and weight that'll move and force adaptations as opposed to like a warm up. Um, and I keep my reps scheme low. Uh, so I won't do sets that are more than five reps and take enough rest and then do that for a couple of years. Yeah. Well, well, you know, it's true. And and we get caught up on, you know, that hustle and building a sweat and keeping the heart rate up is, is what we need as endurance athletes. But what we do on the day to day is so catabolic with all our endurance training that we really need to offset it with like low rep, high output anabolic work to one offset the, the catabolic nature of our sport. And, and any workout that matters to me, five, six, maybe, but five is my rep limiter for all of those things, because we do plenty of Plenty of output in all the other things we do. And in the one area where I think a lot of athletes miss the mark is high volume strength training when they should be doing the polar opposite to completely balance out the other aspects of their training. So uh, we've talked about this before on the podcast, but it's something that I agree with you on 100%. Three to five rep range is a sweet spot, man, in my opinion. Something that makes you so uncomfortable that it it it, it can only shock your body, your nervous system and your skeletal system, musculoskeletal system to respond. Yeah. And I mean, resistance training is great across the board, especially doing some higher weight stuff. Like you get great hormone, hormone benefits. Um, and it also puts new stress patterns on your bones, tendons, ligaments, muscles, like things that you haven't experienced before. If you're just doing generic running or generic run strength training, which is, uh, 
low weight, high volume reps. And those can have their place for like muscular endurance, but they don't get that raw strength. And even just doing high strength stuff allows you to, when you hit obstacles that are so much below your max capacity, it barely taxes you. And that's one thing that Bracken's talked about with compromised running. And another reason I don't do it and like, I'll have my athlete strength training to where when they get to these obstacles, it's so much below what their capacity is, that it isn't actually compromising their running. And that's part of the goal with that. Definitely. Yeah. Bracken, I'll let you uh, segue into the last question. All right. And if you need to bail before the explanation is done, I'll wrap her up for you. Okay. Um, so we, we, we are big believers in polarized training, um, but polarized training looks different in different training groups. I really like working above and below threshold. I like intervals in that 10 to 15 K pace range, you know, that 10 K and CV. I like threshold intervals. I like, um, and I like dipping down to 5 K, 3 K when I need to before shorter races, but I don't do like, I'm going all slow or I'm doing VO2 max or faster. I don't personally love that. I really like that sweet spot training, so to speak. Um, I'd like to know just your take on that. A, are you polarized in nature? I assume you are. And B, what, how do you like to balance your intensities? Uh, I am polarized in nature to answer that. And I'm sure you guys have covered that on a previous podcast. So we don't need to go into that. Um, but yes, I have people operate not super well below, but I'll usually do, if we go by traditional heart rate zones, two, between two and three is at the high end of two, low end of three is kind of our aerobic area. And then I definitely mm-hmm. do have, uh, I call them tempo runs just because it's the easiest term. You call them threshold runs operating just below the threshold, like just below CV, not at CV or above mm-hmm. it. Um, and those are for longer durations, not crazy long, but what you've just talked about in terms of like five to mm-hmm. 10K realm, um, sometimes half marathon depending on where you're training. So just below that. And that, that run I've found is highly beneficial just in terms of, excuse me, lactate processing and learning to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. Um, that's mm-hmm. a place that you can hold that it sucks to be there, but you can hold it. And then I have the above uh, threshold training. And those I don't necessarily clarify super specifically with my athletes in terms of intervals. And I know you have a lot of different definitions, intervals, but higher intensity near VO2 max stuff. Um, And those usually range from anywhere from 20 seconds all the way up to three minutes. And I'll cap it at three minutes because beyond that, you're really starting mix into that. You're forced into high end aerobic at that point. And I don't see the value in terms of the athletes I work with to pushing them into operating there consistently. It would be different if you are doing like a short course event like, and you blow there, mm-hmm. blow your anaerobic stores and are forced back down to critical velocity. But the nice thing is with my training is you're already working at such a high percentage of critical velocity right. in those tempo threshold runs that it's even going up that a little percent more. I mean, yes, it feels harder, but the granularity there is so small that your body can't really tell. Physiologically, you can a little bit because you're not shooting your lactate or hydrogen ions level through the roof. But when you push beyond that percentage at tempo, you find out that you can't sustain it very long. Right. And realistically, that's race effort for us, right? Oh, yeah. Just just below it. Yeah. We're not running 5K pace very often in our races. Even the stadium races, we settle a whole lot closer to CV than we do to 3K pace. 
you know, to, to use the classic track definitions of pacing, but we all resort back to our threshold when we, when we race, there's, there's not a whole lot of, of really burning it up that happens. So I, I like that. Yeah. How often would you say you have those 5k or faster in your programming? I mean, they do them once a week. Yeah. Yeah. So 5k or faster once a week, you do some threshold stuff, tempo work once a week. And do you do the classic long run or do you combine workouts with long runs? I do the classic long run. That is something I, I, there, it, the vast majority of clients, I do the classic long run. There are times when I will Mm -hmm. tick people into doing like, they'll have not necessarily intervals, but they'll have upticks of pace during their runs or tempo kind of areas. Um, And that can be just spicing things up or they have uh, like some athletes don't have all the time in the world that they need. They have this block of time to get done. They don't have time to go do a three hour long run. So we'll, we'll shift it into that. Yeah. Um, gentlemen, I, uh, I'm controlling this podcast. I realized uh, I'm the one who, I'm the one who hit the start and stop button. So if you want to resume, you can, otherwise you'd have to, I'd have to stop this and then you'll have to start a new, a new meeting. You know, let's, let's call this today. There's a lot for people to sift through. And I think we're going to have Ian on again at some point to really dive into uh, like we've, we've, we've brushed over our philosophies, but there are some nitty gritty to talk about mm-hmm. in our future. Well, well, let's real quick, let's give you the chance. Uh, let's give you a chance to talk about your sponsors, your sponsors, because you are backed by a few companies that have, have been treating you well. You can talk about that real quick and then we'll sign off. Um, yeah, I really want to thank Salming. They're uh, my footwear and apparel company I work with. They're great. They're Swedish. Um, I've been extremely happy with their products. Uh, I tried their shoes out a few years ago and they just felt amazing on my feet. Um, I've tried different companies over the years and just felt I haven't found anything that clicks as well as that. And then this year I started working with Endurally and I'm very excited with them. Um, Matt Mossman and I are Mm. of a similar breed in terms of being crazy science nerd people, which we didn't find out until our first, I mean, we'd kind of known, but then we had a phone call and that uh, was pretty great. And his products are amazing. Um, They taste phenomenal and they, they make you feel really good and run really fast. So shout out to Salming and Endurally. You guys keep, keep me going and it's fantastic. Thank you. Excellent. Got anything else, Brackenstein? Pages of it, but it's for another time and another day. We'd love to have you on and break down maybe a training Tuesday. We're going to dive into some sciencey stuff coming up, and we're looking at introducing experts uh, on some of our training Tuesdays coming up. So you may hear from us in that regard, I'm Ian. I'm down. I mean, it only took us what, Kirk, you asked me to be on first, and then we started talking about it in Bracken later on was like, Hey, I want you on the podcast. And then a few more weeks went by and here we are. We made it. We finally did it. All All right, right. Kirk, you get off to work. Ian and I are going to go back to being stay-at-home dads. (laughs) Thank you, Ian. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, guys.